actually in the Ides of March. I know. Don't stab me. Um, I might stab somebody. Okay. I but am, not me. <laughs> I'm having like a very, like, I've been doing really good with like my seasonal, uh, you know, kind of mood disorder kind of situation, you know, mm-hmm. that most people have an issue with. Of course. But I was like, I'm doing really good this year. And the weather's not been terrible. So like, I was like, I'm doing pretty good. And this week had a total meltdown. Oh. And yesterday I <laughs> was like, I think I just need to cry a little bit. Mm. So I watched some like videos about 9-11 dogs. Mm. I was going <laughs> to say Subaru commercials with dogs, but okay. Similar. I went similar. 9-11. Uh, <laughs> and then I watched the end scene of Inside Out and right? just bawled for a little bit. Of course. And then today I just totally tore up one of my floors. Yeah. So I don't know if it's... <laughs> That I'm sounds therapeutic. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I was like looking at it because I've, I've been waking up in the middle of the night, you know, panicking. And then I was like, is this the Ides of March? And it was like some people do have like higher emotional things going on in March because it's like the last month of winter. And there's also know? there was a full moon this week, too. There was. So you could have been thrown. <laughs> I, I was thrown I'm by a, witchery, honestly, <laughs> all sorts of witchery. <laughs> so uh, pray for me. I am not doing okay, but Thoughts it's all going to be good. <laughs> Please, dear God. But the floors are going to look awesome. Yes. Uh, but you're not here to listen to us talk about our floors. No, although I would for all day. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're here to talk about history on the box with Katie and Allie. This is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history. We talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance. But keep in mind, we are not historians. We're drinking the entire time. And we're drinking the entire time. <laughs> Both of those things. We've already started. We just had a great interview yes. with Catherine Sherbrooke. Yes. Very cool book. Go out and get it. Listen to our interview with her. Uh-huh. Whenever that comes out, it's going to be great. Yeah. It's going to be a lot of fun because this is March. This is Women's History Month. You have to like us this yeah. month. <laughs> Those you are the must. rules. The, the rest of the year, you don't even yeah. have to know we exist. But right now, we're this, all over the place. This is our time. Yeah. It's our time to shine. But here's the thing. Maybe you are busy dressing up as a different historical woman every day in March because you have been inspired by Allie's photos. I am of her children. Jealous. If you're doing that, I'm jealous. If you're dressing up yourself. We're jealous, um, but you're trying to get your bonnet on, um, and you're trying to get your pinafore straight. So you're busy, and you can't look up what these women look like that we're going to talk about tonight. Of course, and we want you to know what they look like, so you right. have a picture in your head while we're telling their story. So we're going to get a little physical, physical. Allie, who are you doing, and what does she look like? I am doing the Greek myth of Pandora. <gasps> And she is described in an epic poem, obviously now translated into English, that when men looked upon her, wonder seized them. Mm. So she's very lovely. A lot of times in art, she's depicted nude or semi-nude with a jar or a box. Usually, um, though, she's draped in like a white Grecian robe 
usually a white woman, sometimes with light brown hair, sometimes red, sometimes black. Uh, so it really ranges depending on who the artist is. But I mm-hmm. want to point out my least favorite <laughs> painting okay. of Pandora. It's by Gabriel Rossetti. And it is the like very common picture of Pandora when you type her in. She's wearing like a frock and has this big curly red hair which I don't mind but it's got terrible bangs Hmm. and she's holding the box like she's squandering it out of I don't know like a hidden museum and just looks angry like she's Hmm. scowling and I just it is the only picture of Pandora like that that's so weird honestly type in Gabriel Rossetti stop what you're doing I know I said not to stop (laughs) I know (laughs) your pinafore looks fine uh it's really tragic and I I just don't think it does her justice and it comes up so much you about this one no here I'll find it for you I'll find it for you you tell me who you're doing and what she looks like okay so, oh, wait, I think I found it. You find Is it, it this one? No. Oh, damn it. Okay. I'll find it. I'll Jesus. find it. Um, I am doing Joan Baez. Joan is a woman of average height, but she appears, I think, more small and petite because she is very thin and willowy. Um, when she first appeared on the folk music scene, she had the absolute perfect look for the genre she had long black hair parted in the middle um she had slightly darker skin because of her mexican heritage she has this long oval face with these big doe-like eyes and she has a huge smile that was normally hidden by a rather serious look uh snl even did a parody of uh joan baez where (laughs) they had a game show that was uh entitled Make Joan Baez smile. <laughs> she was always very serious. I'll figure out why. Um, then and now she can be seen either on stage with a guitar in her hands or more often protesting for various causes all around the world. And that's what she looked like. Are you ready for this painting? Yeah. Oh. Oh. Hmm. It's terrible, right? It, yeah, it's not great. And you know who it reminds me of? Um, it reminds me of that girl we did. You remember how- that's just a sentence. You I can't know. just say that. I know. All right. Cut that. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. It's not a great portrait. So I want us all to stop looking at that one. Okay. Because she's a fictional woman and supposed to be the most beautiful woman in the world. Yeah. So, all But right. she's scowling just like your lady. First connection. Just like mine. <laughs> all right. Do you want to know what you're drinking? Yes. I love the way it looks. So I wanted it to look very Mother Earthy. Mm-hmm. It's called It's a Jar, God Damn It. <laughs> Is the name of the cocktail. Uh, it's one part blue carousel, one part uh, vanilla vodka, mm. one part lemon with egg white and a quarter of a teaspoon of sugar. Mm. And you shake it all up and pour it over ice with a lemon wheel resting in the center like it's an Cheers. island or something. Mmm. That is really nice. Oh, I love it. I love it, too. Mmm. Yeah, that's delightful. I was yeah. worried I either put in too much lemon or too much sugar. No, I don't think. But it's fine. Yeah, I think it's delightful. Mm. Yeah. I love the color, too. Anything with the blue carousel just looks really fun. It does. <laughs> and I just really wanted it to look super earthy because I'm trying to do Pandora justice. Mm. going to bring her justice. Well, I will say, isn't that the name of the land 
in Avatar. Don't worry. That's in my story. Oh, okay. Don't but worry. Yeah, this is like literally the Avatar blue, I feel like. Yeah. So that's is. perfect. All right. <laughs> so what do you know about Pandora? I know that she opened a box and like all the evil in the world came out. Sure. And like that's all I know. Yeah. Pandora's box, man. Mm-hmm. But I guess it was a, a jar. It was a jar. <laughs> God <laughs> damn it. That's <laughs> um, yeah, that's all I need to. When I opened up our schedule for this week, I was like, okay, I'm doing Pandora. I know she has a box and mm-hmm. I'm really excited to talk about her. So I got um, my info from Let's Talk About Myths, which I love Mm, that podcast. They're so good. Which they and us were both featured on somebody else's Women's History Ah, Month like podcast stream. Yeah, Queen's podcast Ah. is doing like every day they're posting a different podcast about women. And we were March 3rd, Ah. I want to point out. Very cool. Very early in the month. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Um, And then Let's Talk About Myths, baby. We use a lot. Uh, lots of online resources, you know, random stories. Most of them have the same blurb about mm-hmm. Pandora, but I did find a good animated YouTube video. Uh, and the series is called Greek Mythology Webcom. So it's like a web comic. Okay. Which I really liked. Okay. Pandora's myth first appeared in an epic poem in the 8th or 7th century BC. So seven to 800 years before um, we get into the present day timeline. We're going to start with the basics of the story, the one that pretty much everybody hears. And then we're going to move into the little intricacies that kind of make it special and have made it changed over time. So at the beginning of time, Prometheus and Epimetheus, their brothers, okay. were responsible for the creation of man. To foster the creation of man, Prometheus promises, he's a titan, I think? I think so. Yeah. Absolutely. Promises to steal fire from the gods to give it to men. After creating men, and men only, <laughs> he wanted to make sure they could prosper and fire would help them do that. They could warm themselves. They could cook. You know, they could boil water. Um although they couldn't reproduce because there's no women. So Prometheus knew. He's like, I know I'm going to get punished. I stole this fire. I know I'm in huge danger. My brother's in danger. All of humankind is in danger. And he's like, look, bro, don't ever take a present from the gods, like ever, because they're going to trick you. They're tricksters. And he was, of course, like, I would – Never, I would never take a present from the gods. Like I'm so so smart. This is also giving me real King Louis vibes. <laughs> Give me the secret of man's red, red fire. fire. <laughs> I want to be like you. Ooh, ooh. Yeah, we want to be like Zeus. Um, no, he's so terrible. Yeah, he's the literal worst god. <laughs> okay, so Prometheus famously gets punished for this and his stomach is being pecked out by crows every day and Mm. then stitched up by night and re-pecked out whatever poor prometheus he's really paying for it Mm -hmm. after zeus punishes prometheus he makes a plan against epimetheus and mankind he's like hey hephaestus do all the stuff that prometheus did to make man out of clay but now you make a woman out of clay the first woman okay He brought this first woman, like, unanimated before the gods, and they all give her a gift. 
heart. Um, she's going to become a graceful form of man. So Athena gives her all these woman skills, needlework, mm. weaving. Aphrodite gives her unparalleled beauty, of course, and grace. Mm-hmm. Um, Hermes gives her the gift of words. And the story kind of implies that he made her a conniving bitch. <laughs> He's like, this is, I think, what it says translated into English. A shameless mind with a deceitful nature and the power of speech putting in her lies and crafty words. Mm, okay. <laughs> um, and then some of the other gods gave her a crown, a garland, some jewels, a pretty dress. So Pandora became not just a beautiful creature, but like the most beautiful creature. So she is this creature. She is this oh creature. Oh my gosh. And Zeus is like, okay, she's ready to give to Epimetheus because now he's never going to turn down this present. But he's like, babe, before I send you down, I want you to take this gift to Epimetheus for me, but don't open it under any circumstances. Don't open it. Just don't. And she's like, okay. Like, she's brand new to this. Yeah. Literally. She was literally just made. Yeah. She was a baby. (laughs) A little (laughs) tiny baby. So the gods give her over to Epimetheus, and he is dazzled by her beauty. So dazzled, he forgets, like, what his brother said, even though his brother's, like, getting his stomach packed out. And um, he put her in a room in his house, and she puts this box in there. Um... And the box is so beautiful. And after time, one thing that women had that men didn't have is a thing called curiosity. (laughs) So she's super curious. This is such a pretty box. Epimetheus has never opened it. Maybe he's still guarded because it's from the gods. I'm just saying maybe if men had a little bit of curiosity, (laughs) they would have discovered fire and wouldn't have had to have it handed to them. Listen, that's (laughs) all they're saying. All they're saying is curiosity killed the cat, but maybe it like didn't. (laughs) (laughs) But what if it didn't? (laughs) But what if like it helps the cat out? (laughs) So she eventually fails to resist the curiosity and looks inside the box. A powerful pressure pulses against her like a bomb and a black evil mist comes from this box and this was all the evil that prometheus had not given to man when they were created until then men had been pure and lived in a golden age in a world of pure happiness the box let out all the things that would plague humanity Envy, greed, war, disease, hunger. And she tries with all her might to close the box. And she notices that every evil had come out, except for hopelessness that stays at the bottom as she's trying to close it. Mm. So man contained hope to fight back against all of these things and help humanity prosper. So that's the story of Pandora. So depressing. (laughs) So depressing. (laughs) And in her first appearance in this story, this long epic poem that came out in 7th century BC, she didn't have a name and she Mm. wasn't fully fleshed out like that. Mm -hmm. This first story, it's just a woman. Zeus sends the woman. The woman torments human race. But the same character just a couple years later by the same author, this one is called Works and Days. He widens the scope of her character, and she comes with this box and a name, which is Pandora. So the story I told you is an amalgamation of 
the two stories by the same author. Okay. You know, it's also like very Eve-like. Which oh, I'm sure we say. I'm sure we get to it. But. Oh, it is original <laughs> sin all the yeah, way. It's I the didn't same realize that about Pandora. Story. So Me neither. Interesting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's an apple. God damn it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, the name Pandora means all gift, meaning all the gods gave her a gift. One consistent thing in all of the fleshed out versions of pandora is a box in the first version it's just her right like i said a deceit but after that she has something with her unfortunately in the 1500s this was mistranslated it is supposed to be a jar Mm. the term pethos in the original poem means large storage jar but this humanist translator um who told the tale translated it into Latin incorrectly. So the original storage jar would have been very large and clay. They were usually buried halfway in the ground and used to hold wine or Mm. oil or grain. But ever since it was mistranslated into box, that term has endured forever. Well, you know what? It kind of, to me, has some gendered uh, feeling towards it too, Mm. since like people refer to a woman's vagina as a box sometimes. Yes. So I don't think that that was the original intention, but like it also kind of feels to me sometimes it's like uh, Pandora's like a woman's vagina leashes all the evil into the the world. world. Exactly. (laughs) It's pretty crazy. Like how I think her story is layered on top of so much that Mm -hmm. we do and think about. And I didn't realize that going into this research. Yeah. I had no idea. So archaic and classic Greek literature seems to make barely any further mention of Pandora, but later myth writers add minor details or postscripts here and there. Um, They add that Epimetheus marries Pandora. They add that they have a daughter at some point. But this is a really old tale. And because of that, Pandora's jar is probably a combination of many different myth variants Mm. from many different cultures for example in some translations her name is all gifted like i said given gifts but in some earlier ones it's all giving or she who sends gifts we've found over the years that there are early paintings of a similar woman with a jar but her name is anisadora and In those, she's commonly portrayed as a Mother Earth-ish figure, as the first woman. In fact, a quote on one of these says, Pandora rises from the earth. She is the earth giver of all gifts. So there's a big change here that we see in Grecian literature from respect of matriarchal people to a patriarchy who is writing the story. She's no longer earthborn, but created by a man. Robert Graves, who's an English poet, asserted that Pandora from the Greeks is not even a genuine myth, but an anti-feminist fable, <sighs> probably of the invention of these guys. And the reason they want to make this fable is because they want to make Pandora the, quote, bad wife. It's mm. an anti-Athena. A lot of people in Greece thought that the myth of Athena went too far she's an all-wise virginal woman both these women are created kind of by zeus you know they're the womanly women 
But Athena rose above her sex and Pandora embodies the worst of it. Mm. So her story is kind of like to comfort men, you know, that only goddesses are like that. Yeah. Not the women on earth. Mm-hmm. So her myth, though, or like the writings from the Greeks wasn't completely obliterated. The all giving goddess Pandora becomes this Mother Earth story that we all talk about. Another quote is to Pandora the Earth because she bestows all things necessary for life. So like the giver of life, what mm-hmm. women are, instead of the very original sin story where you're punished to give life because of this mistake you made. In terms of her appearance in art, um, that's also true. There are early BC paintings of Pandora on vases and stitched into things where she is rising out of the earth. And later, the paintings have men banging hammers in the background while she is literally molded by Hephaestus until she's animated. Um, and then there's obviously also paintings of the gods giving her gifts. Mm-hmm. The art, might, much like her story, has these two opposite women mm-hmm. playing the Mother Earth and, uh, you know, the one where uh, the gods made her. Usually in the ones where the gods made her, and this is what Katie was alluding to earlier, once religion got a hold of it, she starts being depicted as nude or semi-nude and sent to destroy Earth for men, much like Eve would have been nude or semi-nude in a lot of her paintings. And you can only really differentiate her nudeness from other paintings of that era because she often had a jar or a box in her lap, in her hand, on her windowsill. Let's talk about religion. (laughs) My favorite. Okay, what are your thoughts so far about Pandora and religion? I just think the parallels are uncanny. Right. That's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Like, that's so wild. But also, we see this all the time. Like, it also makes me think of the fact that, like, the Cinderella story appears in so many different places. Right. You know what I'm saying? So to me, I don't even feel like it was like one ripped off the other. I think it is just this baseline misogyny that has always existed. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what it feels like to me. Like, you know, kind of like, like the Cinderella story. Like there's always been the underdog who you, we love to think makes it out. And that's why the Cinderella story has existed across cultures over thousands of years hundreds thousands of years whatever Mm -hmm. you know it's why the these particular stories exist across so many spaces is because these are the feelings that have always been there and i just feel like the 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 baseline story in this case is if only we could reproduce we'd be so much better without you yeah and that's really hurtful yeah well and that's the whole thing it's this baseline misogyny of like wow if only women weren't so terrible like right (laughs) That would be great. They destroy. They literally destroy the earth every time with their fucking curiosity (laughs) and their feelings and (laughs) they're talking to snakes, all that bullshit, you know. But yeah, that's what I think. I think it's uh, a common misogyny that has existed. It is. So uh, obviously, like I said, the number one reason Pandora starts to be depicted as nude is because they made her an Eve type very early on. Each is the first woman in the world. Each is a central character in the story of the transition from the original state of plenty in this Garden of Eden, this earth that's really doing successfully, to the death of humanity and original sin. 
also being the reason that women are punished for their transgressions. In fact, the myth of Pandora has been said to have been openly influenced by Jewish and Christian interpretations. The Mother Earth was stripped away from her after those religions kind of got a hold of it. Mm. This built to the Renaissance and classical accounts where the Bible demonstrates women as drawing men into sin. And there is actually even a painting called Eve, the first Pandora. Very interesting. However, the parallels don't stop there. Later on, there's an attempt to actually conjoin some pagan and scriptural narratives in other ways. People claim to have found an ancient text where... Pandora is part of the flood narrative. <gasps> Pandora and Epimetheus, who were married, have a baby. And as you know, from Greek history, there are multiple ages. We have Kronos, we have the, uh-huh. titan- the Titans, we have the gods of Olympias. Well, in one of the ages, the gods get really angry and unleash a flood on the earth. And Pandora's daughter and her partner built a boat to protect themselves from the flood because they were warned by gods. And it lands on a mountain after floating for multiple, multiple days. When they leave the boat, they're told to throw the bones of their mother onto the ground. And they say, well, we don't have the bones of our mother. The rocks are the bones of our mother, like Mother Earth, because Pandora's their mom. So they throw these rocks around behind them, and it grows all these new humans and animals. And I think that this is a perfect reminder that Judaism and the Torah was written supposedly by Abraham around 2000 years B.C. Mm -hmm. These stories are coming out about 800 years B.C. So the Torah would would have supposedly existed first. The epic poems then exist before Christianity. So there's this little timeline going. But the Bible wasn't put together a Officially until yeah. 300 AD at the Council of Nicaea. So if these words were inspired by God, let's for the sake of not doubting say that that's true. That doesn't account for the literal hundreds of years of oral tradition and transcribing where people could have messed up mm-hmm. and blended women together and changed stories. And now you have three cultures telling the same story. And honestly, I think a lot of it's true because I know that there are Native American myths where they talk about a flood that destroyed the world. Yeah. And it's like, well, maybe there was a year with this absolutely terrible flood. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're all talking about different floods. Maybe they're not. But yeah. They're all telling the same story. And in the early versions, women weren't the villain. And in the later versions, they are. The closer we inch to like AD or like common era, the more women become the bad guys instead of the life givers. Mm -hmm. So beyond that, (laughs) do you have any religious words for me? (laughs) I thought the flood thing was crazy. The flood thing is wild. That is something that has fascinated me for a while Mm -hmm. that like so many parts of the world have a story about a great flood it's so fascinating it is and it i mean it just tells you like how how real religion is how important religion is Mm -hmm. but then how important these ancient myths are as well Mm -hmm. because they're all telling a story that a human was a part of yeah pandora is also a Danish world-leading jewelry company (laughs) with shops in more than 100 countries and 1,800 concept stores. They say openly on their website 
the name Pandora came from Greek mythology and Pandora as the first woman who was formed out of clay by the gods. The company was started in 1982 in Denmark as just a small jewelry shop, but their goal was to deliver high quality and affordable jewelry pieces to people. And they also have a whole clause about minimizing impact on the environment and working with the UN for working conditions. But what I think is interesting about Pandora is their bracelets, which I personally hate, but... (laughs) I love the idea of Pandora being a charm bracelet. Uh-huh. Um, that's what they're famous for. And yeah. it is literally when you wear one, you're given a charm by your partner or your friends on multiple occasions. Mm-hmm. And it's a collection of traits. Just yeah. like like Pandora released these collection of traits out mm-hmm. onto the world. And I also like the idea of Pandora's box. Like you open yeah. the jewelry box. Yeah. I think it's cute. I also think it's funny. There's an SNL sketch about that as well. <laughs> of course there is. Of course. <laughs> woman's like you guys I got you something really great for Christmas and she's like is it like you know this thing that I've really been wanting and he's like it's a charm for a charm bracelet and she was like oh <laughs> and like it's like it's a box I like you know it's yeah. you're like it's an orange because I know you love oranges or like so it's like like it's like all these women at this party like so you got the charm bracelet too? Uh-huh. Okay, uh-huh. great. And now awesome. every Christmas we just get a new charm. New charm like, for the bracelet. Right. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was really hard to find or like be inspired by a cocktail recipe because <laughs> if you type in Pandora cocktail recipe, it's just a little charm, a martini charm for the bracelet. <laughs> and I was like, now I want to buy this martini charm. it. <laughs> and then, of course, the most recent addition to the name Pandora has been the James Cameron directed Avatar movies Mm -hmm. and the planet that they live on is called Pandora. It's a moon sized planet with a first nation type people that has a higher kind of land to water ratio than earth. And the movie is about the evil of colonialization mm-hmm. coming into an area and this love between a man and a woman kind of corrupting his goal. Mm-hmm. He changes his goal after he meets her. And I think that's a really interesting yeah. like part of this story and a good choice, right? Like they are using technology to come to this planet to steal resources and he falls in love and that kind of goes to shit and all the other men are pissed. I mean, it's the, you know, Disney version of Pocahontas all over again. It's just that story being, again, it's like the stories that keep getting retold. Over and over. Yeah. Yes. But based in reality. Yeah. You know, like based in some sort, like obviously like this did happen to so many people. Yeah. And like there are men who like abandoned their Mm -hmm. colonial ideas to be with women that they fell in love with. Like that is true. Yeah. And people in that scenario see the woman as the corrupt test. Yeah. I mean, obviously, uh, Pocahontas' story is a little more involved than Disney Let's <laughs> Absolutely. On. Uh, we do a whole episode on it. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> so Pandora is actually a moon of Saturn. Oh. So it's not just a fake planet. Cool. Uh, it's a moon. But I just, I liked doing her story because she is actual literary evidence that at one point the world respected Yeah the gift-giving nature of women, and Mm -hmm. it has slowly transitioned over time to the aspects of women being corrupt in nature. But if you go with the ancient Greeks, 
us being corrupt is actually more godlike than men mm. because they are corrupt and tricky yeah. little bitches. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the story of Pandora. Perfect. I love it. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get another drink and we'll get into the story of old phony Joni. Phony Joni. That was an old comic strip about her that I don't agree with. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Goodbye. back a new cocktail this looks way more traditional than my cocktail i love it yes it's like a nice little like honey color it is it's beautiful um so do you want to know what it is i i mean don't tell me don't you dare that's terrible so this is called the barefoot madonna um it is it wow <laughs> okay it is gin apricot preserves a little bit of fernet branca and what is you, that? So we've used it a couple times before, most notably in the, um, <laughs> most notably, uh, fuck. Go Don't cry for me, Argentina. Okay. 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 Yes. Okay. Yeah. That woman mm-hmm. cannot think of her name. It's fine. To save my life. <laughs> Evita. Um, Ava Perone. <laughs> Mm. Oh, yeah, we got a lot of garbage for that. (laughs) Yeah, we did. People were pissed. And maybe they'll be pissed about Joan Baez. People hate us. Yeah, they do. (laughs) You can't Um, hate us right now. It's Women's History Month. Um, But yeah, and then you top the whole thing off with sparkling grapefruit soda that I got from Trader Joe's. (laughs) It's a very crunchy cocktail. Right. Uh, So yeah, cheers. (laughs) Crunchy. Shut up. Cheers. Mm. Mm. That is... Interesting. The Fernet Branca is very bitter. I only put a little bit in it. It is very bitter. It's overtaking the whole thing. Uh, I don't dislike it, though, because you only taste it on the tail end. Like, when you first drink it, it seems very sweet, very light, and then it, like, hits you at the end, Mm -hmm. which is nice. Yeah. I mean, I do like the taste of Fernet Branca. Mm. Uh, But, yeah, it's a very, like, bitter um, kind of, I don't know if it's an aperitif or a liqueur, like, what it, who knows. But, you know, but it is very, so I tried to use just a little bit of it, but, um. But yeah, but I still think it's pretty good, and it tastes very uh, hippie. <laughs> it tastes granola. <laughs> uh, perfect. So what do you know about Joan Baez? I mean, all I know is what you said. She's okay. a folk singer, mm-hmm. and apparently she has bare feet, <laughs> which I kind of know a couple people <laughs> like that, and I don't necessarily get along with them. So <laughs> I, it's not that I don't. I have a Subaru, so. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, I used to like country music, and like specifically the Wreckers. Well, I love the records. <laughs> Let's talk about why they cannot have another album. I could. Oh, my God. Sit me down. I yeah. will sing every song to that out loud for you, just like my daughter would. But I was thinking about Alison Krauss. To me, like when I think about slow folk country singing, she's who I think about because she's so fucking good. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So Joan Baez, I'm not. She does a lot of like uh, folk, like folk. We'll talk about it in her story, but, like, folk, when she came about, was very much about, like, getting in touch with, like, very old music and, like, reviving it and breathing new life in it. So, like, Joan does, like, mostly covers, actually. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, um, it's, she's, but she, again, is, like, this very, like, iconic folk singer. Um, and What's her last name again? Baez. B- I know nothing A- about her. Z. Um, I want to look Also, speaking of barefoot people, I don't know why. Contessa? I don't, <laughs> I don't know why the, the internet is doing this to me, but it keeps sending me like Instagram accounts of like 
young mothers. And one of them was like, yes, I got pregnant at 15. And no, I don't wear shoes ever. And it's like her whole Instagram account is like her just raising her daughter and not wearing shoes. Niche, baby. So niche. <laughs> so niche. And she was like, yeah, I'm like I'm here I am taking my daughter to the doctor's office and we don't have shoes on. In a doctor's office, honestly. Like, is it even legal? I don't know. Anyways. But present, you, can, you have to wear a mask. But Anyways, no but you don't have to wear um, shoes. Joan Bias aged so well. <gasps> so well. Are she you, is gorgeous. Stop I that. know. Get her Isn't off of my so phone. Beautiful? What is the hell? Dude, she's so pretty. So pretty. I um, think she's prettier now than she was in the <laughs> pictures I'm seeing of her when she was young. Stop it, Joan. I know. She's great. She also kind of reminds me of Shelley Duvall from The Shining. Okay. Okay. A bit when yeah. her younger pictures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm, so I got mm-hmm. most of this from a PBS Masters documentary from 2009 from Wikipedia <laughs> and from the Music Rivals podcast. That's so a we'll, fa- we've never used them <laughs> we've before. We've never used them before. <laughs> Hi guys. Um, <laughs> welcome. Okay. Joan Baez was born on Staten Island, New York on January 9th, 1941. So, so close to the right so island. Close. <laughs> Just right. barely there. Just 18 tolls and you'll be there. Her mother, Joan Chandos Baez, referred to as Joan Senior or Big Joan, was yes. born in Edinburgh, Scotland. What a big thing. <laughs> she was the second daughter of an English Anglican priest who claimed to be descended from the Duke of Chandos. So if you know who that is. <laughs> Her father, Albert Baez, uh, born in Puebla, Mexico, uh, grew up in Brooklyn, New York, where his father was also a leader of a church. He was a Catholic priest, but then became a Methodist minister and led a Spanish-speaking congregation. Excellent. So... Both of her parents come from very religious backgrounds, and Joan's father, Albert, was going to father in the family footsteps and become a a pastor, but then changed his mind and turned to the study of mathematics and physics and received his Ph.D. degree at Stanford University in 1950, and he was later credited as the co-inventor of the X-ray microscope. A heathen, honestly. So wild. A heathen. (laughs) To turn from the church to science? How could you? The microscope. The x-ray microscope. Huh. Unreal. Uh, And she had two sisters, Mimi and Pauline. Mimi has to is by far one of the best names ever created. I love that name. You really so think much. that? Yes. I like the name Mimi. I don't I think it's the best. It. I like it. <laughs> I like it. I just think it's adorable. Uh so due to her father's At work, what age? Uh what? Up through twelve and then from sixty-five forward? Middle age is weird. Middle age is weird, but I think the right person could really pull it off. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not me. <laughs> no, 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 no. I could never be a Mimi. <laughs> I'm not cute enough. So due to her father's work with UNESCO, their family moved many times, living in towns across the U.S., as well as towns in England, France, Switzerland, Spain, Canada, and the Middle East, including Iraq. Isn't that wild? Get it. Honestly, she, get it. But this is before like the 70s, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. she's in the, um, uh, yeah, the 50s now. Like yeah. 40s to 50s. Yeah, that's, she's traveling all, all Have over Have you ever the place. seen those pictures of women from Iraq and Iran like in the 70s? And like miniskirts and, and stuff. And they look it's like. really wild. It's crazy yeah. what a couple decades has done. Okay, go yeah. ahead. 
Uh, but yeah, she said they never stayed anywhere longer than four years. And because of her Mexican heritage, she was bullied wherever they went. Oh. So, but she's very like worldly from a young age. And then when she's also young, her family converts to Quakerism. Oh, which, the best religion. Yes, which shaped her worldview immensely, specifically her lifelong dedication to pacifism. So obviously she's all over the place, but she spent most of her formative youth living in the San Francisco Bay Area where she graduated from Palo Alto High School in 1958. She made a name for herself at the school by protesting the air raid drills. So even in high school, she's protesting. (laughs) Of course. She famously didn't budge um, during a drill when she was in French class. And the next day she was written about in the local paper as a conscientious objector. But the letters to the editor about Joan were not as gracious. They said, this girl's a dangerous communist. And she's like, guys, I'm just being realistic. My dad did the math. And by the time a missile left wherever and got to here, she goes, we'd all be dead. So like, why don't we just like stay where we are and shelter in place? Why are we doing drills where we're like running home or whatever it was? Maybe it was the opposite of that. I can't remember. But she's basically like, what we're doing doesn't make sense. And nobody was listening to her. Yeah, because she's a child girl. Yeah. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. Um, but then when she was 17, the family moved again to Cambridge, which was the perfect place to be a young girl with a voice and a look like Joan. So Joan had always been interested in music. In fact, she was gifted a ukulele at just four years old. And she and her sister, Mimi, loved playing music and singing together. Um, But it was the blues that she loved the most. And when she heard folk music for the first time, it just changed her life. Because she'd always been into the blues. And then folk was like, oh, this is actually what I'm supposed to be singing. So Cambridge, like Massachusetts. Yeah. We're okay. Harvard square. So, but this is, so I had like burgers with this... Mora there. <laughs> Sounds delightful. It was great. And her husband and the whole fam. <laughs> it was great. So early, earlier than when they moved to Cambridge, I think they're still on the West coast. Her parents had taken her to see Bob Seger and she immediately <laughs> went home and taught herself what she remembered of the folk songs that he had sung. Right. She taught herself how to play the guitar and she took it with her everywhere. She was the girl that would like bust out the acoustic guitar at lunch and be like, let me play you a tune, a Bob Seger tune. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, she like loved music and because her family traveled so much, they have all these like home videos of themselves, like literally just like, in the car, in the desert. And Joan always, Joni's always got her guitar out. And it's, like, very cool, like, her history with music. People like that are so annoying until they're famous. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, my daughter plays the piano all the time, and she's very talented. And I'm like, I literally hate this. And then she'll play something really good, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> like, maybe I should care yeah. a little more about this. <laughs> maybe she's a Joan. Maybe. Who knows? But things didn't get serious um, until Joan found herself at a little cafe in Harvard Square called Club 47, where she performed live for the first time. There were eight people there, mostly her family, and she got paid $10. (laughs) But they loved her, and they said, you're a natural folk music artist. So they started paying her $25 to perform twice a week. She was just 17 years old and already winning people over with her quivering soprano voice and soulful ballads. 
Her guitar playing was also very impressive. She finger-picked the guitar, uh, whereas Mm. most people at this time were kind of relying on just the chords. You know, that's what everybody starts with. But she's finger-picking the guitar almost like banjo style. And she's singing these, like, again, like very old, like, Appalachian-type songs. So it's just adding more depth to her whole persona and performance. And Bob Dylan said about her, he goes, I tried to copy the way he, she played guitar. I could never get it down. Like, she's so good. <laughs> wow, Bobby. More on him later. <laughs> Send so, me the compliments. <laughs> she and a few other folk singers soon got together and recorded an album of folk music called Folk Singers Round the Harvard Square. <laughs> and it was around this time she met Bob Gibson. He was another folk singer, and he recognized her talent and invited her to perform with him at the Newport Folk Festival. Mm. If I say folk one more time, I'm going to scream. <laughs> Shenanigans. And I will. <laughs> Keep going. Um, Keep saying it. <laughs> her performance at this festival in 1959 would prove to be her big break. She performed just a few songs in front of 13,000 people. Whoa. And blew them all away. And this is the concert where people started calling her the barefoot Madonna. They were like, she came out of fucking nowhere. We didn't know who she was. She was just this beautiful little woman with this amazing voice who just like, it's that type of performance where everybody gets quiet. And they're like, oh, that's a really special person. She's changing hearts out there. So Columbia Records tried to sign her. But Joan chose to go with a smaller label called Vanguard Records. How Taylor Swift of her. I know. She knew she was going to make less money, but it was worth having a little more artistic freedom. Her first album, Joan, was recorded in just four days in the ballroom of New York City's Manhattan Towers Hotel. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Shut up. I can't even imagine. Uh, And it was released in 1960. Sure. It sold fairly well for a new folk album, but it was her second album, Joan Baez Volume 2, in 1961 that really put her on the map. This album went gold. The early 60s seemed to be all about Joan. She was called the Queen of Folk and even appeared on the cover of Time Magazine in 1962. They had a lot to put on the cover of Time in 62. Like, that's crazy. I know. She said that when she was told that they wanted to put her on the cover, her first thought was, ugh, how ghastly to be on the cover of Time magazine. And then she said, but I was also thinking, how irresistible to be on the cover of Time magazine. (laughs) How could you ever think that first thought? (laughs) Unless you like they're picking the picture and you don't get to see it first. It was like a drawing of her. It was actually, you know what it kind of reminded, it kind of reminded of like a Vincent Van Gogh. kind. It's a really beautiful thing, but it's like kind of chalky and like really beautiful. Oh, great. Um, But this is like Joan's whole thing. She was like, I loved it and I hated it. I loved being on stage. I hated being on stage. Like she suffered from crippling stage fright she said it normally would go away after the first song or two but sometimes she would have a panic attack in the middle of a song she'd freeze up she'd go backstage she'd splash some water on her face she'd walk back out and she'd pick up literally from the note and the word that she left out on in the middle of the song and people were just okay with it so whether she was comfortable with it or not she was at the forefront of the folk movement um which again at this time was more about reviving old songs and doing these like really calm covers you know and all these things but 
she soon met a young artist that she felt had some promise. And she was like, this guy's writing his own songs and they're incredible. And his name was Bob Dylan. (laughs) You mean my best friend? On hearing him perform his song with God on our side, she later said, I never thought anything so powerful could come out of that little toad. (laughs) (laughs) Anytime she talks about him, she goes, he was just this dirty little street urchin. And I was like, but he's got the soul of a poet. Is she Paige? (laughs) I mean, that's how Paige talks about people. And I'm obsessed when people have (laughs) really good adjectives. (laughs) You know what I'm talking about? I mean, he was writing such beautiful songs that Joan said, I didn't know what I was missing in my own music until I heard him. And she was like, you know, again, we are all singing songs that had existed for a hundred years. And he's writing songs that carry the same amount of weight, the same feeling, and were just as beautiful. And they're just pouring out of him. It was incredible. She said they started singing together and it just, they worked so well together. So she said, Bob, like, do you want to start coming on stage with me and singing some songs. And he goes, yeah, fuck, why not? (laughs) In the words of Joan. In the words of Joan. That's what Bob said. So they started playing together and they started dating. They, Oh yeah. They were like madly in love in the early sixties when again, he is a scruffy little toad urchin, street urchin. Good for them. I mean, imagine like Aladdin if he was Bob Dylan. I mean, Riff Rat Street <laughs> Rat. <laughs> I'd buy that. <laughs> Come a little um, closer. <laughs> but people did not react so warmly to him at first. So Joan would have a concert and she'd be like, here's Bob Dylan. He's going to play a few songs for you. And they would be like, boo, we don't <laughs> like him. Who is he? What? They were like, because he is the exact opposite of Joan. Yes. Joan is like, I'm going to buy some apples and put them in my basket. Yeah. And Bob's like, you know? Yeah. Terrible. Arrest me. (laughs) Um, That's what I'm going to listen to to go to sleep from now on. (laughs) That exact song clip. (laughs) A dream come true. So people are like, we came to hear Joan Baez. We don't want to hear him. And, and then so Joan had to go out on stage and be like, hey, you stop that. He's very talented. Defend your man. And she did. <laughs> and she told them, she goes, look, maybe his voice is completely psychotic. <laughs> but listen to the words that he's saying. He's a fucking poet. He's a lyricist, my man. And then she invited him to sing with her at the Newport Folk Festival of in course. 1963. Because she was like, you know what? This is what happened to me. And it was my big break. I'm going to do this for Bob. <laughs> and this was their A Star is Born moment. Oh, yes. Picture this. Preach. Joan Baez is Bradley Cooper. <laughs> Bob Dylan is Lady Gaga. <laughs> Lady Gaga. <laughs> Lady Gaga. They're singing say. shallow together. <laughs> and very quickly after this, Bob Dylan a.k.a. Lady Gaga, becomes a breakout star, and the entire dynamic of their relationship starts to change. And I do want to thank the Rivals Music Podcast for this, because they made that analogy, and I was like, that's perfect. Gaga. So... (laughs) A dream. So Bob starts getting really famous, and 
at first it was like, no, we're both equally famous. And then it started to be like, mm, he's more famous than Joan. <laughs> and it was getting to the point where like he was going on stage and like going to these shows and like she was now relegated to the like to being like a groupie instead of like an equal artist with him. She was like, yeah, I would be like singing on most of the songs and then a couple of songs. And then I wasn't even invited up on stage anymore. And it was really embarrassing and it was upsetting. And she felt really isolated and lonely, especially as the drug use and the music scene ramped up that she wanted nothing to do with. Joan was always really like pretty straight edge. So when Dylan got more into his cycle of, you know, smoking pot to calm down and then taking pills to be up, you know, she was like, I hate this. And she got even more depressed. And then on a particular tour in London, she went to his hotel room one night to give him a gift and discovered that he had another girl in his room. <gasps> Bob! It was his other girlfriend that he had had on tour with them the whole time. And she didn't know because there were people there making sure that they never saw each other. Dude, the was, whole he was missed out firing them the whole time, mm -hmm. like at the restaurant. At the restaurant, dude, it fucking sucks. That's like a television show that brings my anxiety up to <laughs> a television show. No, any show that does that where you're supposed to be in two places at once. Oh, I anxiety up to my eyebrows because I'm always just like, just tell everybody what's going on. Just say like, I, I can't make it. I'm sorry, I can't go. Like, <laughs> I I won't be there. Let's do it another night. My God, there Pierce Brosnan, <laughs> calm down. There are 365 <laughs> days in a year. Sally, I'll sometimes, be with you later. Sometimes 366. <laughs> Find a different. But yeah, so Bob Dylan is a huge fucking asshole to her during this time period. And like, the thing is too, there is like a whole bunch of documentary footage of this time period. And he's, you can see him being a dick to Joan. And she's like, I should have just left the tour. I know I should have, but I just like, I loved him so much and I wanted to be there for him. And it was, it's like really bad. And Dylan agrees. He goes, Oh yeah, I was awful to her. He was like, you know, my career got moving so quickly and she just got swept up along with it. And he is like, I'm just so sorry it happened that way. Like, you know, she didn't deserve that, but like, it is what happened, which I'm I, glad he's ashamed. I, Really appreciate that he is so fucking open about, like, he's like, yeah, I was not good to her. Like, that's true. You know, he's not really trying to deny it. Okay, Bobby boy. Um, And Joan was also really frustrated with him because she was moving into more of an activist space. And Bob Dylan wasn't really there yet. She was like, you are the poet of our generation. Why don't you write more songs for the cause and help us with this revolution. And he was like, look, I'm here for a good time, not to be arrested for protesting." <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said, he was like, Joan was just like, so into this thing. And she couldn't understand that I wasn't. And, uh, you know, and like Joan said, she goes, I should have just accepted the fact that that wasn't his bag. And like, you know, they're very, they talk a lot, obviously, about their relationship. And I think Joan was mainly, like, disappointed because she was like, he can write the songs that I can't. Mm. And if he was an activist like I was, 
then we'd be really getting somewhere. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, it sounds like they both really appreciated one another and one mm-hmm. another's artistic ability. And like, it was a very mutual, like, end to the really hard for broken, obviously oh, yeah. and clearly, mm-hmm. but it seems like they both like cherish one another. Oh, they do. Which I think yeah. is very beautiful in an ex relationship when you can cherish the other person. And like, I also think that takes years of separation. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, so it's just like a. It's hard because they had so much love and care, just like you're saying for each other, but it just like wasn't going to work because she was like, well, now I'm an activist first and a musician second. And Bob was like, I'm a musician, period. Like, that's not what I am. End of discussion. End of discussion. So now we're going to get into like a little bit of Joan's activism. So throughout the 60s, she's obviously touring all over. And she noticed that when she was in the South, her audiences were completely white. Which isn't crazy for folk music, um, but she was like, but I feel like there should be, like, some non-white people here. Like, what's going on? Especially since and there's then, just a bigger black popu- yeah. population in the South. And then she looked at her contract, and she goes, oh, my God, I'm playing in segregated venues. And she had no idea. Oh, Joe, She was furious that, like, she just didn't know she was playing at whites-only venues. And she was just horrified. So she soon made desegregation a staple in her contracts, and she would even go out to encourage black folks to come to her shows. Like, she would, like, send people out and be like, go invite some people, which, like, kind of sounds a little messed up. But she was like, you know, I just wanted to, like, make people aware that, like, the venue was open for them because I'm playing there, you know? Well, yeah, so, because like, some people don't want to confront being thrown yeah. out or being told no. Yeah, so it's a like, horrible position to be in. Yeah, <laughs> it's uncomfortable. And it's like it's like some people are willing to do that activism, yeah. like Joan, and mm-hmm. some people are more like Bob Dylan. We're like, yeah. I don't want to deal with this. <laughs> so they're like, that. I'm not going to go to a venue that's going to throw me out on a Friday night when I could just stay home and be pleasant. Exactly. So that's, n- I mean, it's nice of her, I think. I don't mm-hmm. know, though, like the other side of the coin. Yeah. Uh, She also made a rule that she would only perform at black colleges in the South. Um, And Joan wasn't just interested in diversifying the folk music scene. She soon got more and more into the civil rights movement and straight up activism. She even performed the song We Shall Overcome at the 1963 March on Washington, which she said, Bob Dylan would have never showed up if I hadn't made him. (laughs) Because they were obviously still together at that point. Of course. Of course. She also participated in the Selma to Montgomery March in 1965. she didn't. Mm -hmm. And she routinely performed a song called Birmingham Sunday, which was written by her brother-in-law, all about the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, which we have also covered on this show. She even went down to Mississippi to help escort young black students to desegregated schools to protect them from the violence that was being hurled against them. Because she was like, look, someone needs to literally, like, hold these kids' hands and walk them to school. And, like, frankly, I'm a celebrity, so they're not going to, like, throw things at me and hurt me. And, like, one of the guys, she's, like, being interviewed by the news. And they're like, so, like, you think because, like, you're a celebrity that, like, you're going to add more protection? She's like, yeah, I hope so. And, like, literally as she's talking, a car tries to, like, run them over. And she goes, oh, I guess not, like, all the time, but, you know. Uh, <laughs> Joan. But, yeah, but she's a hero. literally going down and just, like, I will walk every fucking kid to school if it means that, like, they're going to be safe today. Right. Right. Which is beautiful. 
Um, she worked very closely with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. during this time period because they shared that mission of nonviolent protest. Of course, there were rumors spread of the two of them having some sort of affair, but this was just people trying to discredit them and tarnish their reputation. It was just a smear campaign, which yeah. is so fucking annoying. Um, then in the late 60s, she started protesting the Vietnam War. She publicly withheld 60% of her income tax in protest, and she would also stand outside of the military buildings where the drafted young men were like going to be like shipped off to war. She would stand outside of these built these government buildings with lawyers and she'd be like, No, you don't have to do that. Like come with me. I have a lawyer with me. We're gonna get you out of this. And like obviously like a lot of them were like, I don't know who you are. <laughs> like yeah. I'm not gonna just who go away you? with I'm not gonna <laughs> break the law. Um, and in nineteen sixty seven uh, she was arrested multiple times for blocking the entrance of the Armed Forces Induction Center in Oakland, California. She said, I went to jail for 11 days for disturbing the peace, but I was just trying to disturb the war. <laughs> Do it, girl. David Crosby of Crosby, Stills, and Nash said of Joan, she'd get picked up, she'd get thrown in jail, and as soon as she was out, she was right back protesting. Uh, and her longest stint in jail was, I think, like a little over a month. Um, wow. Yeah. She was in the Santa Rita jail, and while she was there, she met a man who was also incarcerated for protesting the draft. His name was David Harris. And even though they were on the separate, like, you know, male and female side of the jail, they still managed to visit with each other. And once they got out of jail, they became even closer. She even lived in his draft resistance commune in the hills above Stanford, California. So if you thought for one second that the barefoot Madonna was not going to end up in a commune at one point, you would be mistaken. Listen, this is the prime time (laughs) to be in the hills of California. In a commune. Either you're murdering people, you're starving to death, you're drinking the Kool-Aid, or you're really making a change. Maybe you're doing all those things. You could be. You honestly could be. And within three months, they decided that they wanted to get married. Wow, three months! they were going to make a political statement with their marriage. People were so excited about what this wedding was going to look like. <laughs> Time magazine, they love Joan over there, even called the upcoming nuptials the wedding of the century. Time magazine is wild. They love her. Good for them. There, was like, there were like two fans on staff. <laughs> and they were like, it's time. <laughs> it's all about Joan. <laughs> I love that. So they found a pacifist preacher and they found a church outfitted with peace signs. And they wrote a blend of Episcopalian and Quaker wedding vows. And they Beautiful. married in New York City on March 26, 1968. Which, like, doesn't sound that crazy. Um, <laughs> to me, I don't think this is even close to the wedding of the century. I mean, to be clear, Princess Diana also got married in this century. Correct! And then instead of a honeymoon, they went on an anti-draft lecture tour, which does not sound as fun. I don't know. If you could stay in college dorms all across the country... Dormer commune. That's the life for me, baby. <laughs> Give me that bunk bed. <laughs> Give it to me. And that rubber mattress. <laughs> hey, at least you can spray them down with disinfectant. You can't do That's that in true. hotel rooms. That's true. Then they moved into a different commune mm-hmm. on a piece of land 
called Struggle Mountain. <gasps> Where is this located? Somewhere in California. Oh, my knows. mom's on the peak of that. <laughs> <laughs> and if they weren't on Struggle Mountain, they were traveling around speaking at anti-war rallies across the country. Perfect. But it wasn't long into their marriage before David was drafted himself. Oh, no. He, of course, refused the indictment and then was arrested by federal marshals on July 16th, 1969, the same day that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin and man number three. I'm so <laughs> <Mark> sorry. Collins. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think <laughs> that might be a made I'm up so name. sorry. Uh, so literally while they were being shot off to the moon on Apollo 11. Oh my gosh. Okay. Just a fun fact. Uh, <laughs> lots of men are being sent places. That's yeah. Lots of men. Send me. Um, There's so many women who wanted to fight and you just wouldn't <laughs> fucking let us send me instead. <laughs> I'm and making it, sure his name is Mark Collins right, right let's now. Do that. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. Um, and unfortunately for Joan, she was pregnant when David went to Texas to serve his 15 month sentence. She was even visibly pregnant when she performed at Woodstock. 69? Barefoot pregnant Madonna performing at Woodstock. Get out of here. That Woodstock? Yeah. That. That 1969 (laughs) Woodstock. The the, The only. The Woodstock? Yeah. Well, I guess there's the 90s Woodstock, too. Yeah, wow. Nobody cares about that one. No. I mean, Gwen Stefani was probably there. Who cares? Mm. I do care about her. I I love Gwen Stefani. Me, too. I mean, Hollaback Girl. Joan wrote songs about this time period in Michael her life. Collins. Michael Collins. Michael Collins. So close. Mark was close. Mark was close. Damn. Yeah. All right. Sorry, Mike. That's all right. <laughs> so That's are you are you Mike? Right. <laughs> You're Mikey Collins. I'm it. him. It's me. <laughs> I've been on the moon. But I wasn't allowed out the door. <laughs> I can only sit in the chamber and watch one small step for man Dude. and none for Mikey. Do we know how he got that gig? Like, how did they pick Neil? I mean, they all have different jobs. Like, one's a pilot, one's like a scientist, one one's a Neil. He probably was like a footballer. Mm. Neil, the Johnny Unitas of the crew. Yeah, <laughs> he's the quarterback. He's the quarterback of the Apollo Eleven. Michael, <laughs> you missed it, but in the footage, he has a Letterman jacket on. Mike is the ball boy. He's just like more water for you mr armstrong um, <laughs> he's probably woo! a fucking phd scientist <laughs> we're such assholes but who cares because he's a man and that's not what this show's about no tonight we it's about bob hate. dylan though it is kind of about bob dylan <laughs> he's right. not done in this story okay so then their son Gabriel was born on December 2nd, 1969, and David was released after his 15 months. But when he and Joan reunited, things had changed. I mean, he had only seen his son a few times during prison visits, so he kind of felt like a stranger in their life. You know, it's really hard to kind of come back from that. And after three months, they very amicably separated. They remained on good terms. They had shared custody of Gabriel, and they divorced officially in 1973. In her autobiography, she would later say about the split, I am just made to live alone. So Joan continued to be a single mom. She said she felt like she was doing a good job, but Gabriel was like, 
I don't know, you're kind of absent a lot. And he goes, not even to your music career, but like to your political obligations. You know, he was like, when someone else called to tell you about a rally in Toulouse, like, you know, you literally stop reading to me halfway through a bedtime story and like take the call and plan a trip to be a part of another protest. And he was like, it was kind of upsetting being almost like third. You know, he's like, you went protest, music, than me <laughs> you know so it's kind of it's one of those things it's always hard to have a famous parent who's doing so much um but they're still very close and uh he even he's a drummer and he played with her um in her band later on which is very sweet cute so in 1972 her political obligations even took her overseas she joined a peace delegation traveling to north vietnam uh, and this was both to address human rights in the region and to deliver Christmas mail to American prisoners of war. But on the third day of her visit, she heard an alarm go off. She thought it was just a drill, but she quickly realized that the planes she heard were dropping off very real bombs across Vietnam. Well, is her dad there to do the physics? <laughs> he was not. So these <laughs> bombs were all over the place, right. not even close to where they were supposed to be. Um but the bombing was a strategic bombing that continued for 11 days straight. And Joan was there for all of it, hiding out in a bunker. That's what I pay taxes for, yeah. honestly. She said, I had never felt more mortal than that moment. Ooh. So while all this has been going on in the 60s, uh, she's still releasing music with Vanguard Records of her 14 Vanguard albums. 13 made the top 100 on Billboard's mainstream pop chart, 11 made to the top 40, 8 made the top 20, and 4 made the top 10. But then in the 1970s, she switched to A&M Records and released six more albums with them, including her Spanish album, Gracias a la Vida, and the album Diamonds and Rust, which ended up being the most successful of her career. The title song, Diamonds and Rust, detailed her, her toward relationship with Bob Dylan. And apparently he was honored by the song. He goes, you know, it's a really good song, and I'm just so honored that Joni wrote it about me, even though it was, like, not a flattering song to him. <laughs> <laughs> He's so wild. And hey. he was like, you know what, Joni? I'm doing a tour, the Rolling Thunder tour in 1975. He goes, I want you to come along. Let's get the band back together. And she said, yeah, I'm totally down for this. And her husband. Oh, no, she's, she's not. Divorced. She's separated. Yeah, they're they're split up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this was a really special tour. There's actually a whole documentary on Netflix about it um, that I haven't watched. But it's the very famous tour where he's got the hat with the flowers <laughs> and he paints his face white. Right. And, but one of the purposes of this tour was that. Dylan wanted to focus on smaller, more intimate venues. He said, I want to play for the people who never get good seats at my larger concerts because of ticket costs and inconvenient locations. And he's like, I'm literally going to do a tour of dive bars like across America. And Joan said that this tour was so much fun. She was playing music with her old friend. Everybody was wearing costumes and painting their faces and they're doing all their old songs. Aww. And she just was like in this weird tour. She goes, I was able to actually kind of kick off my, 
protest hat and put on this weird red scarf with Bob Dylan and like just be Joan Baez the musician again. And she's like, and it felt really good just to have fun. That's you know? so exciting. Yeah, because I mean, we've talked about it before, but being a full-time activist is such a hard choice. Right. Because she was, again, treated as like the very serious Joan. And like she's never allowed to smile because she's always <laughs> going to war-torn countries. And like yeah. taking things very seriously because she's like, yeah, well, these things do need to be taken seriously. But then on this tour, she's like, oh, now I can just be silly and I can have fun. And I just think it was a nice way for her to like take a fucking break. Right. Um, now I don't know the exact ins and outs of this. I did not watch the documentary, like, but I know that eventually she was like, all right, I'm done with it. And like, she left the tour, but it was a really good time. Uh, so tours over and she goes right back to her causes. She travels to places like Cambodia and Thailand and Chile. She even went to Sarajevo in a war torn Bosnia in 1992 to perform for them. And I mean, she is literally out in the streets with a bulletproof vest because it was so unsafe there. Like there is like, it's kind of, it looked to me like current Ukraine okay. where like there's people living their lives and then there's like a bombed out building right there. Mm-hmm. And you're like, whoa. And it's just like, but she just fucking goes there. Joan is also a staunch defender of LGBTQ rights. Even as far back as 1978, she protested against the Briggs Initiative, which would ban openly gay people from teaching in public schools. In the 90s, she performed at the San Francisco Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Pride March. On Earth Day 1999, Joan and Bonnie Raitt honored environmental activist Julia Butterfly Hill with uh, the Arthur M. Socot Award in person on her 180 foot high redwood treat up platform <laughs> and if you want to hear that story you can also listen to our julia butterfly hill episode because we're 205 episodes <laughs> in ladies can you believe it i can't uh and she also did a tree sit with julia in 2006 she is against the death penalty. She is an advocate for the innocence project she performed for the occupy wall street protest and yeah, she has been a part of pretty much any kind of social justice thing that you could possibly think of. In the 1980s, she dated Steve Jobs for a little while. <laughs> Apparently, he wanted to propose to her. <sighs> wow. But then he realized that she was in her 40s and probably like didn't really want to have any more kids, which I don't think she did. Uh, so they broke up, but the two remained on good terms, and she even saw him before his death. Um, but then... One of her biggest losses in her adult life was her sister, Mimi. Mimi had been a singer as well, and as we said earlier, a longtime companion to Joan, and she died of breast cancer in 2001, and it just completely devastated Joan. Of course. And other than that, her personal life has remained pretty quiet over the years. We know that she's still a very strong political activist, and she still plays music. As I said, her son Gabriel is even her drummer. Um, I don't know if he still is, but he was for a long time. And she received a Grammy Lifetime Achievement Award in 2007. Amnesty International has named an award in her honor. Shut up. I know. So the Amnesty International Joan Baez Award for Outstanding Inspirational Service in the Global Fight for Human Rights is to be presented to an artist, music, film, sculpture, paint, or other medium who has helped advance human rights. 
And in 2023, Rolling Stone ranked Baez at number 189 on the list of the 200 greatest singers of all time. Joan is currently 82 years old. She is still kicking ass and still inspiring people to make the world a better place. (laughs) And that's Joan's story. What a great story of somebody that I didn't know anything about. Yeah, I didn't either. I kind of like knew that she was like kind of like a 60s activist, but like. I knew she was a folk singer, but like that was kind of it, you know, yeah. but I didn't really know like her connection with Bob Dylan is obviously a huge part of her story. Sure. Which is kind of annoying because like Joan is rarely mentioned in stories about Bob Dylan, which Lame. I find really annoying. Bobby. Um, cause she obviously like got his career started when he was younger. Yeah. Um, but anyways, so we need to talk about these two ladies together. And a little segment we like to call just the two of us. Wow. Okay. I think that it's very interesting that they were both kind of these like idealized women. I didn't talk about this per se because it got too little into the nitty gritty, but Bob Dylan wrote a song about Joan Baez at one point that was like, I'm sorry, we can't all be as perfect as you. Oh, interesting. You know, and it kind of made me feel about like these women being created in this like perfect form of like you know Joan is put up on a pedestal as like the queen of folk and this activist and this perfect person but every well, and she's a person Quaker. is flawed and yeah and like but every person is flawed and I feel like that's the whole thing with the Pandora story too is like no matter how much good you put in from all these gods into making this perfect person if she's a person, she's going to be flawed. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and I think that their stories just changed over time. It mm-hmm. was like Joan was this star, still in her own as a star, but she had this transformation where she became a groupie yeah. almost for Bob Dylan. And I think the same is true of Pandora. She started as this Mother Earth figure and then became this of uh, just like, bringing terror to mankind and now has become a planet again. Yeah. And it's like now she is earth again Mm -hmm. to this fictional first nation people. I think it's a really nice, like they both have this crazy bell curve, you know, they really do. And I think they're both dealing with all the evils in the world, you know, Mm. and specifically you said one of the things that pandora released was war and obviously that was joan's like main focus she was like war is evil it, it like at some point like she's literally in this bombed out area and she was like and they're like what do you think about this and she's like this is hideous and he goes what do you mean it's hideous and she looked like she looked at him like what do you of course this is hideous look at this it's like war. it's war it's awful and it kind of like Joan was never afraid to look all the evil in the world in its face and name it for what it is. And I think that's also like a thing about Pandora's story that I think is very glossed over. It's like the evil existed, but we were ignoring it. It was there the whole time. I'm curious enough to find it. Yeah. And Joan was like, I'm curious enough to go to these fucking war zones. I'm going to go and walk these kids down the street because, like, there is evil coming for these kids who are just trying to go to school. And I'm going to look it in the face. I'm going to tell it to go fuck it right off, you know? (laughs) And I feel like Pandora is doing the same thing. She goes, we're all ignoring the evil in this jar, in this box. We're just going to ignore it. (laughs) 
what if we're gonna have to deal with it at some point like you know what i'm saying yeah. so like, i feel like we have to look at pandora from the other way of like maybe she's just like an activist yeah maybe she's just a fucking activist being like you know what no i am gonna call attention to this and i am going to say that we need to deal with our problems rather than hiding them away in this box and pretending that they don't exist yeah i absolutely <laughs> agree and i i also think great point i also think <laughs> just like, came to me in the moment i didn't oh write it down wow <laughs> i also think like joan calling um bob dylan the poet of a generation is is so interesting because the the grecian men that wrote these epics mm -hmm. that included pandora were poets of their time yeah. you know and it's like the women didn't get a say. They mm -hmm. didn't get to be poets. And there were some female poets, Sappho mm -hmm. to name one. But like, it's unfair that like Joan also, maybe the lyrics didn't come to her in the same way, but she was speaking out and doesn't get that label of poet of the generation. Because mm -hmm. they're both part of this poetry storytelling. Yeah. Well, and I feel like because they don't maybe necessarily have the words, they're both more action oriented. Ooh, that... Yeah. Both of them kind of, at first, you're like, oh, that's like a sweet Mother Earth. But then they actually start doing shit, and you're like, oh, that's a crazy woman. Like, you know <laughs> what her. Like, Eat we don't her. like that. When they start to do too much, when they start to look that evil in the face, they're like, no, I don't like that. And but, and I think it's interesting, too, that like we're talking about these, this very ancient story of Pandora and the ancient stories that also surround her story that connect with it. Mm. And there's been reinterpretations of it. And we were talking about how Joan did the same thing. That was why she wasn't writing her own songs. She was like, well, no, I'm part of like the roots movement of like, we're doing all like, we're reviving all of these. We're doing the work to bring songs. it back. We're bringing it back because they're timeless. And there's also this sense of like, you can learn from the past. You can learn from these stories that like maybe you think of as just a fairy tale, but like other people see as a fact. And like also if it is just a fairy tale, there's still a very valuable lesson to be learned in some of it. You right. Know? Yeah. And it's like where truth comes, comes from. Yeah. Like are these fairy tales? Yeah. I, I know this is stupid, but I wrote down that you said amicable and I said the word amalgamation. And I don't think we often use very big words, but I think we both were like trying to describe what these women were and what yeah. they were doing. And there are very specific words set aside for specific actions. Yeah. And I think they were both part of very structured actions that are supposed yeah. to take place. Mm -hmm. And I, I just thought our vocabulary was like really on point today. Yeah, <laughs> I totally agree. I just could, <laughs> I couldn't think of anything else. It's like, as we were talking, I was like, Oh, yeah. we're really, yeah. we're really doing it. Well, I would say the last thing that these stories had in common was hope. Oh yes. That was the thing left in the jar or the box. And I think that that is all, well, you said it was the, the hopelessness was what was left in the box. Right. So hope is still left in the world. And I think that that was, that's what keeps Joan going. Mm. Joan has hope that we can be better people. We can be kinder. We can be peaceful because you can't do that kind of work without that kind of hope. And so I think that that's such a good bond that these two stories have, um, is yeah hope that people can be less shitty <laughs> i mean you really hit it out of the park tonight katie 
<laughs> a grand slam, one might say. Thank you. Three good points and then a homer. <laughs> All right. Are you ready to toast these ladies? I am. All right. Who would you like to toast this Mine evening? Mine is very simple. <laughs> Perfect. I just want to toast women that have unleashed their power. <laughs> yes. Unleash it. Unleash Dump it. Dump out the jar. Untether <laughs> oh. yourself. I'm going to toast the women who are really fucking out there. Yeah. Joan wasn't just singing about the issues. She was literally holding kids' hands, walking them to school, hugging people in war zones, getting up in the fucking trees to hang out with them and protect them. And I I just love that that was her thing. She goes, I'm an activist first and a singer second. Second. So cheers to her. Cheers. Mm. All right. Now, what are you enjoying in pop culture this week? Okay, so I told you about this on Sunday, mm-hmm. but I haven't told the crew yet, okay. the pod crew. Um, Rocketman. Outstanding. Outstanding. If you like Elton John, if you know who Elton John is even, <laughs> <laughs> a great movie. It just takes place at the precipice of his career when he's trying to figure out who he is and going yeah. from unknown to known. And... We know, obviously, as watchers, that Elton John had a big part in getting this movie made. Mm-hmm. He helped hand select, um, I think his name's Taron Egerton. And he is, if you have kids, <laughs> the guy who voices the gorilla in Sing. <laughs> and oh, very cool. He does the, in Sing, he did a cover of an Elton John song. And then Elton John's like, oh, okay, excellent. So wow. let's have this guy do it. But then... Richard Madden, who is the oldest brother on um, Game of Thrones, Jon Snow's older brother, uh-huh. he plays like one of his agents. And there is this, I want to say, the most emotionally drawing um, gay love scene that I've ever seen in a movie really? that's like PG-13. And mm-hmm. it was beautiful. And I'm watching it with, you know, my entire family. And it mm-hmm. wasn't uncomfortable. And it shouldn't obviously be uncomfortable, yeah. but I just like, I know that like if my parents had seen that movie, they would have been like, this is graphic. Yeah. Turn it off. <laughs> but it was just lovely. And I think yeah. it put this really beautiful like story of like, this is who I am. I am gay. I am a musician. I did get addicted to drugs. I did make my life better. And now I'm still famous and I'm happily married with a child. Yeah. It is just such a good Elton John's story and I just he has been so openly gay for longer than it's been legal and I have to remind myself of that when my kids were born it wasn't legal for gay people to get married I know so I absolutely love that and then his like um lyricist I didn't know Elton John doesn't write his songs really so him and this other guy who's played by Jamie Bell team up towards the beginning of the movie because Elton John's a great musician and this guy's a great lyricist and they're friends for their whole lives to this day they work together so that that guy is the words behind Rocket Man and Benny and the Jets and Crocodile Rock like it is such a good movie great and I love Elton John so like I really need to see it I just felt like it kind of got overshadowed by Bohemian Rhapsody when it came out right because they came out very close together Mm -hmm. and I felt like people were like whoa two (laughs) biographic movies about like two stars of like the 70s and 80s like what's going on so like I kind of feel like 
Yeah, I kind of feel like Rocket Man got overshadowed. So I will say I really watch we it. did it on like Amazon Prime and we rented it and it was like ninety seven cents. Oh, really? Yeah, it was okay. perfect. A great rent. Great. Per- Can we talk to you after you watch <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. All Go right. Ahead. I'm gonna recommend a podcast I listen to. It's a. I've been getting into these like kind of like short like serial style podcast. This one was called The Boy in the Woods. It's from BBC. It is about this murder case that happened in the UK and this little boy from this poor neighborhood of England was murdered and it's all about how this boy's murder did not get solved for 30 years because the police were so thrown by like the economic situation of the area he was in and like like judging his family and like you know not to give too much away but like they just decided who did it in the first like two seconds of the case and like literally ignored all this evidence and like it's just like really uh it's wild and Mm. it's kind of about like the uh I don't know obviously like he was not in a great situation but his murder also could have been solved a lot sooner and so it's just it was a really interesting podcast about how like uh frankly like poor people do not get the same type of justice that wealthier people do no that's just a fact Mm -hmm. like people are like well you're you're poor so like you shouldn't have been poor to put your kid in this position in the first place yeah and it sucks so it was just a really moving podcast i thought it was really interesting uh, and it's not that long so yeah the boy in the woods from bbc love that (laughs) all right well find us everywhere for listening (laughs) Go to all of our social medias. Mm-hmm. We have the link up to our live event. It is free. All you have to do is register and then show up. Yay. Day of. <laughs> Friday the 24th. 6 o'clock. Be there. Eastern Standard Time. Yeah. It's going to be great. We're going to have so much fun. We're going to make cocktails and we're going to be just as ridiculous as, as, normal. as normal. And we have some wonderful guests for you. <laughs> yes. We're, we're going to be posting about them this week. It's going to be great. Just a big yeah. party to celebrate um, the show that you guys help keep going. Yeah. We would not do this without all of your support. No, this is terrible. Uh, <laughs> and if you want to support us more, go to Patreon for as little as a dollar a month. You can help. Yeah. Buy us cocktails and make us feel like this is worth literally anything. Um, <laughs> So, but yeah, we love you and we hope to see you next week. And we want you to never forget that well-behaved women don't unleash destruction on mankind. God, no, they don't. <laughs> but they also really make history. So, <laughs> so good goodbye. Bye. Listening to her story on the rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.